Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to another episode of The Dispatches patron-only podcast. Uh, Happy New Year and all of that jazz. It is great to be back with you. Wow, I was going to say, not quite fully back. We're a bit of a a staggered return to to business uh, at the start of 2022. I had to do a bit of a a mind search there as I was talking, trying to remember what year we are in, but it's pandemic year three, isn't it? (laughs) Is that what we're calling it now? I'm not sure. Omicron, the year is Omicron. So it's 2022. We're back. Uh, This is the first ever patrons only episode of the podcast for the year. Uh, As per usual, they will carry on uh, almost every week this year, uh, barring unforeseen illness or other major incidents. We don't start back fully, though, with the rest of our uh, weekly uh, podcasting schedule, the free-to-air episodes, until next week. And there's a bit of a new schedule coming this year. So basically last year I ran myself just a little bit too ragged and tried to do a little bit too much, and I found myself every week running out of time and uh, so I was having to eat into family time which is not good and I'm not going to do that again this year to try and sort of make everything work so what that means is this starting from next week there will be the patrons only episode of the podcast every single week so you our patrons a huge thank you to you for your support of Left Foot Media your uh, exclusive patrons only episode will will still go ahead as per usual every Monday And then there will be one other free-to-air episode every week as well. Uh, Previously, we'd been doing uh, one patron's episode and two free-to-air. So going forward, uh, that won't be the case. It was just a little bit too much on the plate, so I'm sort of trying to make everything work this year. The good news is that there are some other plans afoot as well uh, in regards to uh, regular written content that's going to start coming online, if we can make that all work. And... And, and a few other developments as well. So, um, yeah, don't panic. It's uh, Don't panic, Mr. Muttering, for those who are uh, mature enough to remember Dad's army. Um, but, yeah, it's all good. Monday Night Live will return mid to late February. It's just a matter of teeing up our guests and, and getting the uh, panel back together again and all that kind of stuff, making it all work. So just a, a little bit of jiggling and juggling involved to, to, to sort of make all that work. So sort of mid to late February, you'll start seeing the video episodes return again to Left Foot Media as well. But from today onwards, the Patrons Only podcast is back every single week. Now today, we've got a bit to talk about today. A lot has happened since we last spoke together. A couple of main topics I want to talk about really uh, or get to is, is this new call from the British Medical Journal, which seems to be now sort of the, the one publication that's quite interested in trying to walk a balanced, nuanced and sort of genuinely objective middle ground uh, regarding pandemic science and vaccine science and everything to do with COVID. And they have uh, issued an editorial call a couple of, uh, I was going to say weeks, a couple of days ago, uh, saying, look, we need greater transparency around the vaccine data. Um, and it's a problem. It's, this, by the way, has been a problem. We're going to talk about this next week, actually. Uh, the free-to-air episode is going to discuss another scandal, which we'll get onto when we talk about this BMJ 
uh, editorial uh, that happened about 12 years ago where we are still not, despite that scandal 12 years ago, dealing with full transparency from these pharmaceutical corporations when it comes to data. And uh, that matters, especially during a pandemic. And then also uh, the New Zealand media sort of going on these bizarre witch hunts. But I want to talk about one in particular that came to my local region over the last week or so. Before I jump into the other stories, though, we've got a few other things to touch on too. I, d- I just want to say um, it's great to be back with you. If you're struggling right now, I would say hang in there. I think the next phase of this pandemic, now that we've got Omicron in New Zealand, is probably going to get a little bit hinky for the next few weeks. And, and why I say that is because I can see a sort of a perfect storm starting to come together where we, we haven't, for several years now, we haven't really allowed a robust, open, and I think fully um, free and honest uh, public debate about, amongst experts and others around the response to COVID. What's happened is we've had these policies rolled out. Really, when you look at it, um, and we're not the only ones, New Zealand here, a lot of countries did this, the initial playbook of just locking everyone down, that was copied straight from China. It's not something that was on the original pandemic planning. It's something that we copied from China. Um, there, There wasn't really, when you think about it now, it's kind of amazing to think about, there wasn't really a lot of thought or discussion that went into it. It was just lock everyone down. And, um, and, Sort of that, I think in New Zealand anyway, it's a sort of a pattern was set because we had this lockdown. We are a small island nation with lower population density than a lot of other places that got hammered. We also had the advantage of, of sort of meeting COVID later uh, in, the, in the wave as it sort of swept around the world. Um, and, and all of those sort of advantages, uh, you know, mean that, that we were able to achieve um, lower case numbers and you know that, that's a, always going to be a better outcome right less risk for those high risk groups um, as a result of all of that and so I think what tended to happen was certainly amongst the what should we call them the media class I don't know I mean I, I don't want to be cynical I don't want to be overly negative one of my big uh, resolutions <laughs> it's a combination of a resolution and a revelation one of my, <laughs> one of my big resolutions for this year is to try and to be more concise, to tell the truth, but to not be as, as cynical about all this. To I think I, I felt a bit of cynicism and, and a bit of, I guess, in the frustration at the end of last year sort of creeping in. Um, but uh, I, I want to be truthful about it, and I want to, when I'm frustrated, I'll, I'll tell you that, and I'll, I won't pull any punches. I'll be upfront and honest about all that, but I don't want to be too cynical about all of this. But but um, that's my, my resolution, so you know, hold me to it. <laughs> if you sense I'm getting a bit too cynical, don't be afraid to call me out. Um, but uh, one of the things was that I think as a result of what happened here in New Zealand was that the sort of the media classes, if you like, sort of decided that they weren't going to entertain much in the way of dissent. There would sort of be a, a tolerable low level of dissent. And it's not just New Zealand, that's a pattern that's been around the world, but but really here in New Zealand in a big way. And so here we are, we've got Omicron has arrived. There's no escaping this thing. The latest data I've seen indicates that Omicron is just so infectious that, and it's it's um, genomic twin variant, or they call it B, B1 or B2, I can't remember what the, the exact name is. Some have called it, called it daughter of Omicron, is even more transmissible than actual the original strain of Omicron was. 
But the point is that it, it's just so infectious that there's actually very little you can do about it. The die is cast, as they say, once Omicron hits your shores. So when the Omicron wave hits your community, and it has, it's hit our community now, it's starting to roll, there is very little you can actually do in the way of interventions that have any meaningful effect. And it's not because people are bad or lazy or they don't listen enough to the experts, uh, often self-appointed. It's simply because it's just so infectious. It just, it just rolls and does its thing. And you sort of, it's one of those situations where you get picked up by a wave. I guess it's just too big and powerful for you to swim against or duck dive underneath. So you get dragged along with it. And there's not much that you can do about it. The, the, the die is cast, so to speak, because it's just so infectious that the things you try and do are actually trailing the infection the whole time. And it gets to a point where your contact tracing just hits a tipping point. It's just impossible to do anymore. And, um, and so this thing just you know, rips on through. And thank goodness it is a milder variant. It means that the death rate is much, much lower. The hospitalization rate is much, much lower. The severity is less. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, it's just a mild sniffle. You know, people still get a cold or a flu-like experience out of it. Thankfully, a lot of people are asymptomatic. But it, it, it does its thing. And it, and it sort of washes over you. But what we've got is the situation. We haven't had a robust open public debate. This thing is now coming. It's here. And so I, I, you sort of get the sense that you've got all these sort of bad policies, a, a lack of honesty about it, a lack of discussion about why we're doing things, because we really, the media and certainly the government hasn't really tolerated people questioning to, to raise questions about, well, why would you do this particular thing? Often saw you labeled immediately as an anti-vaxxer or I think even worse than that was someone who hated people, was just a greedy libertarian who loved money and wanted people to die. That was really the caricature that was put forward. And of course it was an absurdity. That was not at all the majority of people who raised questions. That was not their motivation. But it became this sort of this false dichotomy. And so here we are. We've got this wave that's ripping through now. We haven't really opened the space up properly for for public debate. We haven't created a forum, if you like, we can have that. So you've got bad policies that may have had some effect in a previous pandemic, but now we're just doing them as if they have the same effect What for what is really a whole new pandemic here. It's This variant is a new thing. And so, for example, these silly red light rules around vaccine passes, and, and they, are, they are really quite an absurdity when you think about it, because the vaccine passes they don't mean anything with Omicron because everyone, Omicron is an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't matter whether you're vaccinated or not, it'll still happily take you on board and do its thing. And and so the vaccine passes, well, we now know. You might remember I, I made this comment last year more than once, but it was clear to me that they were not a safety tool. It was not about public safety. They were a coercion tool. They were a punitive measure designed to punish people into getting a vaccination. In other words, you will not be allowed to do all the things that you like. You will not be able to fully participate in society and do all the, the leisure activities and church and all these other things that you normally enjoy, sports, all that stuff, unless you get the vaccine that we want you to get. And um, I had people say to me, no, that's not true. You know, you're not being fair. It's a safety tool. It's about public safety, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, over the holidays, you probably have read or heard about Michael Baker's editorial in the Guardian newspaper in the UK, where he said exactly that. 
He said the traffic light system, the vaccine passport system, was not designed as a safety tool of this nature. It was designed to, quote-unquote, nudge people towards vaccination. In other words, to coerce them to get a vaccine. And so here we are, though. Any justification you might have had for using it, those who, who were trying desperately to keep up this pretense, this false pretense that it was about safety, uh, you know, that would only make sense if the vaccine passport or the variant you were talking about, the vaccine had some uh, important effect on, on, or major effect on, on reducing transmission. Well, it, it doesn't with Omicron at all. I mean, and everyone knows it. It's this bizarre situation. So we've got these bad policies, a lack of space for public debate about the policies, and then sort of a panic sets in because this thing just moves so fast. So I, I think <laughs> that was a rather roundabout and very long-winded way of saying, look, I think the next phase, the next few weeks is going to get a bit hunky before this thing just sort of rolls out. And the, the positive side of this is, though, I, I think what you end up with is a situation, certainly it seems to be the case is, as this has happened in other countries, is the, the, the variant rolls out so fast that the government effectively just loses control of it. Um, it does what highly uh, transmissible respiratory illnesses are wont to do. It moves very quickly through a community. And so all of a sudden it just, um, it, it, you know, the sort of the futility of standing there. And I, I guess it's like someone who takes a bucket down to the beach and, and, um, and, and thinks that they're going to drain the beach by, you know, grabbing a bucket of water and running up and dumping it into a into a, a lake on the other side of the sand dunes, you know, child-sized bucket at a time, thinks that that's going to make a difference. It sort of gets to that point, do you know what I mean? And and so, but the next few phase, I think, is going to get a little hinky. That would be my suggestion. You can see that already. There's just sort of a, I think, an undue panic. I've talked to people in the hospital system, healthcare workers in the New Zealand hospital system, who are saying, look, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to push, as these things do, but... This is the reality is this, is now that we've got a government that I think is really trying to um, they're trying to micromanage, I think, what is a, effectively a new flu variant, um, and uh, that that's that's a very bizarre situation to be in. So previously, what would happen is you would you would get a flu or a cold and you would stay at home for those few days where you had symptoms and then you would carry on with your life. Now, like it's being mandated. No, you, you know, 14 days at home, 10 days for your close contacts, all this sort of stuff where we're starting to micromanage people and that's where the bad effects will come in because that has impacts upon how society will function. You've got a state that we've become so used to, too many people have become used to allowing it to micromanage our lives throughout the last couple of years to a degree that is not healthy and not humane, I don't think. Uh, you, you Societies are messy things. They're like relationships. It's like a big scale relationship with all these people around you. And it, 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 relationships are always messy things because people are messy creatures. That's just the reality of life. And you've got to accept that messiness. At the moment, any, any uh, state or government tries to say, no, we will produce a very tidy and clean version of society. It will be the best thing you ever see and your life will be wonderful and everything will be so much better. That's when you get into utopian territory and invariably um, serious mistakes and even injustices creep in because you can't do that. It's not what a society is. You've got to tolerate and put up with and accept the messiness and accept the imperfection and accept all of the challenges and the sufferings that go along with it. And we, we, we really don't want to. We're living in a society that doesn't like that. 
And so we're sort of seeing a lot of the effects of that play out with this, this sort of response to this pandemic. And, and so we've had this micromanagement of our lives going on to a degree that I think was, was um, over the top. And some measures you'd say were warranted, others were just, you know, it, was, it got absurd. So here we are now with this milder variant and the micromanaging is still in place and it's really, really out of place now. Um, and that has impact. So that's why I think, you know, you've seen in other countries and you'll probably see it here, unless things change drastically, is problems with the supply chain with healthcare workers. Because instead of being treated like rational human adults by the state who can manage their own health and who can make appropriate decisions about when they depart from and re-enter the workforce, the the government is trying to mandate these blanket rules as if everyone is, is like an automaton and they all get sick the same way at the same time and that these rules can sort of just be mandated in this way. So, yeah, here we are. Next couple of weeks, we'll see what happens. So, again, there's a rather long-winded introduction and roundabout way of saying, hang in there, uh, have hope. Uh, for me, being a man of faith, I cling firmly to Christ and in this phase, even more so than ever. Uh, I think that's really... Um, essential and and the good news is it does seem like Omicron is the beginning of the end of the pandemic Uh, there will be people in power who don't want to accept that though and it's clear to me already looking at some of the information coming out of the recent in the last couple of days World Economic Forum yeah World Economic Forum I think it was they had their meeting and there's already talk about keeping track and trace going even when the pandemic ends because it will be useful for other things and mask wearing and all sort of stuff it's just there's some people are not going to want to let go of this newfound power i mean i've been warning about that in the podcast all last year it's the reality of it when government regulations when when new powers are given to governments by themselves they generally don't release them that's the trajectory of history so you know that's the next struggle that lays ahead after the pandemic um, brings itself to an end uh, which looks like it it's it's um happening so yeah here we are Right, let's jump into the articles and stories I want to talk about. And there's a couple of things I want to talk about before I get into this issue of the British Medical Journal and, um, and the New Zealand witch hunts. And by the way, we're going to end with, a, with a, a positive good news update for New Zealand, which is a, a good thing. Um, so, uh, first of all, though, we've got these new rules now about masking children. And Michael Baker came out last Wednesday... And he said this, so I'm reading to you from an article, by the way, as per usual, all the links to the stories I reference in this episode are found in the show notes for today's show. So here's the article from One News, Michael Baker wants mask use for children as young as two. And I heard that and I did a double take and thought, come on, he can't be saying that seriously. Like, I don't believe any serious person or so-called expert could be proposing this and thinking seriously that this is actually a good idea you know like like yeah it, 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 I look at this and I think how does this actually make any sense this is this is um this this can't be real I think there must be some spin on it. there might there must be um some you know media hot take where there's more nuance or there's something well no it's not so I went and read the article let me read to you from this one news article the University of Otago professor who had been calling for clarity around mask use for the highly transmissible COVID-19 variant, Omicron, told One News one quote-unquote key area that was missing was the extension of mask use to all age groups of children. 
He said children as young as two years old should be wearing them. Um, yeah, <laughs> quite frankly, that is insane. Like, that's not just an absurdity. That is just insane. And when I look at that, it makes me think to myself, well, what other advice is Michael Baker giving out that is is now this unreliable? So it makes me wonder about all of his advice. If this is what he's saying about masks, it makes me think, well, the other stuff he's claiming, is that also this absurd and ludicrous? Because it really is ludicrous. Now, the current rules that they've got already state that all students who are year four and up need to wear masks in school. That Even that is just pure foolishness, not just public transport, but actually when they're in the classroom and we've had the notice from, from um, our school about all of this. And, and I really feel for a lot of schools who have now become the rock and the hard place by all accounts, uh, or sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place because they've become effectively these sort of mechanisms of this sort of madness where they've got to administer these foolish rules, but then they get stuck in a situation where apparently, for example, if you want to seek an exemption for your children, you know, you go to the official bodies and they say to you, well, we can't do that for you, you've got to go to the school. But the school's just saying, well, this is what the, the ministry, the government has told us to do. And I can't see too many schools saying, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you an exemption because they understand that they can, thanks to the power of, I guess, health and safety um, um, authorities, that they can be in real trouble, very serious criminal and financial trouble for violating these new and weird and wonderful and sort of arbitrary rules. I said to my son the other day, um, we weren't talking about anything related to COVID. I just said to him, we were sitting there watching a movie, I said, are oh, you looking forward to going back to school, mate? And he said to me, he said, oh, I was, but I'm not. So he's eight years old and he's he knows now he's going to have to wear a mask. And he said, um, they're going to have... Our desks are going to be separated, and we have to wear a mask. And uh, I don't, and I don't, I don't. I'm not looking forward to it. Oh, I don't like that, or something, something on those lines. And he was sort of quite, he was, you know, he wasn't crying about it, but he was certainly not happy. Um, he, he sort of just looked rather glum about it all. And my 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 heart, my father's heart, broke a little bit for him. And I thought, this is madness. This really is madness. The sort of we're, we're lumping onto our children. Um, this unfair burden. And when Michael Baker says stuff like this, it's just crazy. So why would you say, well, I think already the rules are absurd. I don't believe this will have any meaningful effect. And I, and I tell you why I don't think it will, because first of all, we don't even really have a proper mask standard in New Zealand anyway. The data as I understand it, and again, you know, do your own research, but as I understand it, the only masks that actually have any meaningful impact. And that impact is not huge, by the way. I read an article that was written in The Lancet. Yes, The Lancet. Not conspiracy theorists are us or IHateMasks.com, but The Lancet, where an expert highlighted that once the Omicron wave hits, that even if you got 80% of your population masked up, so wearing masks, the, the, the benefit from that would be about approximately a, a mere 10% reduction in the cumulative caseload for Omicron. So it, it's not, this is not, even if you've got high levels of compliance with this stuff, the, 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 the benefits you get from it are not huge. So, but it's being sort of sold as this sort of magical mystery, you know, cure-all. Again, it's been, this has been one of the hallmarks of this pandemic. 
And so what we've got is a situation where now you've got young school kids who are expected to wear these masks, but we don't have a mask standard. So the only masks that actually seem to have any meaningful impact are N95 masks. So they're really, you know, the top grade masks that actually do the business for you. Our mask standard in New Zealand now says, well, you're not allowed to wear a T-shirt anymore. So, well, gosh, that's, um, that's hardly... <laughs> It's hardly much of a change. When they said there's going to be some new rules, no t-shirts and scarves around your face. You think, gosh, it's not much. So um, you can still wear cloth masks, and those masks are made of all sorts of weird and wonderful fabrics. A lot of people set themselves up selling cloth masks online and repurposing other fabrics. So you know, you're not allowed to wear a t-shirt, but you can take a t-shirt and put two loops on it and wear that. Yeah, that's the sort of the, the silliness of all of this, this whole thing. Uh, the surgical spit guards, as I understand those in the medical professional refer to them, you know, those, those basic paper masks that sort of really just stop spittle going out uh, are okay. And of course, if you can get your hands on an N95 mask, you can wear that. Um, I've got a couple. I, I sort of a few months ago saw this coming and, and looked at, again, looked at what the data was indicating. N95 seems to be the good option. I thought, well, we've got to wear masks, so let's just um, let's just do it properly and we'll, we'll track down a couple and, and, and we were able to get some. Um, and then literally a couple of weeks later, the word got out that N95 was the mask to have. And as you can imagine now, it's really hard for people to actually get a, ho a hold of them because people have, um, you know, there's not enough of the supply around for people to get access to. Um, and our professionals need them, rightly so. <laughs> Why shouldn't they have them in those sort of medical settings? But here we are. So we've got the situation where a lot of these children are just going to be wearing little more than pieces of fabric or paper on their face that, that don't have any meaningful impact. Even if you are using an N95 mask, you've got to use it properly. So as I understand proper use, what this means is that you've actually got to, first of all, wash your hands thoroughly before you handle the mask and then you put the mask onto your face and you try not to touch a lot of the mask you put it on as sort of carefully as you can but you form that tight seal with the thing and then you're supposed to wash your hands afterwards I think as well well certainly I remember reading that in one set of instructions I got with a mask but um, the point is you've got to form the tight seal you can't touch your face you can't keep touching your mask you can't keep adjusting it it really only gives you about two hours worth of use. So think about all of this in light of children. You see, a mask effectively is a, um, a highly technical piece of safety equipment. It, it, it's not like a sun hat. And I'm seeing some schools making that comparison. And it's really not a valid comparison. Because a sun hat is a very, very, what you might call user-proof I won't say idiot-proof, because that's not fair, but user-proof sort of safety device. Once you put it on your head, as long as it's there and it stays on, it does its job for you. You know, as long as it's obviously wide-brimmed. It's a proper sun hat, not a beanie or something like that. But you put a sun hat on your head, and guess what? It's wet and forget. Spray and walk away. You don't have to do much with it. You just... Just put it on and it does its job and you can touch it and you can move it around and you can, you know, wipe your forehead and all these weird and wonderful things that we all want to do, let alone children. And it still keeps doing its job. Well, a mask is not like that. So you have to not just be careful about how you apply a mask and not just have the right sort of mask, but you also then need to be very, very careful about 
um, scrutinizing your behavior when you've got the mask on. So what that means is you can't keep touching your face. You can't keep touching the mask. Uh, you, you can't keep adjusting the thing constantly. And once it starts to get warm and wet, which that will happen very quickly in classrooms as we go back in the height of summer, then the mask is now working against you and you need to go and replace it. And, and you realize the absurdity of all of this, because what does that replacement mean? Well, in, in, in practice, it would mean leaving the classroom, going to a place with hot water and soap, washing your hands thoroughly, removing the mask, whatever you're going to do with it at that point, then getting the new mask, you know, I guess washing your hands again, getting the new mask, so you touch it sanitized, putting that on, fitting it properly, and then going back to the classroom. Now, in theory, that would have to that procedure would have to happen at least once, probably twice in an average school day, right? The amount of time a child spends at school, it's probably more than that even, um, because of the hot rooms and how quickly the masks will become wet. You know, it would icky, but you know that happens, and all of a sudden they're not doing the job for you anymore, and so. Um, we're expecting, even for adults, that's a sort of an arduous thing. And, and you know, you've got to monitor and you've got to get it right. Otherwise, this thing just provides very little sort of useful protection even for adults. Now, think about children, young children as young as eight. They just want to live their normal, humane childhood lives. That's what they do. They, they run around, they ha grab each other by the shoulders. Hey, what did you do this weekend? I played Minecraft. Did you play Minecraft? <laughs> what did you do on the holidays? All that kind of stuff, that cool, humane stuff that kids do together. And, and, and what we're trying to do is we're trying to have our cake and eat it too now. So what we're doing is we're imposing this absurd, unfair burden upon our children. And we're expecting them to do something that they're really not qualified to do. This has been, I think, the story of the West, actually, for the last couple of decades. We're imposing these awful adult ideological burdens upon children. So we're imposing this burden upon them. And we're expecting them to do this thing that really they are not, it's not even remotely suitable for them to be doing. It's not going to produce a safety outcome. We sort of burden them with it. I mean, if, 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 if the situation was that serious, then rather than saying to children, let's make you do this thing that you can't actually do and therefore won't have any really meaningful impact, we'll, we'll shut the schools, we'll keep the schools closed. And I'm not saying we should do that. I, I don't think we should. I actually think we need to wake up and grow up a little bit here and accept that um, Omicron is a milder variant. Yes, sadly, some people will die, as they do every year with influenza and with flu and other things. That's the reality of this. Yes, some people will suffer. But we need to accept, and I've got a podcast episode coming about this, that you can't live a humane and full and dignified human life, unless you are willing, I think, to embrace and accept the possibility of death and suffering. The moment you try and escape that is the moment you start to get into trouble. And that's what we've done. We've built this sort of very weird anti-sickness, anti-suffering, anti-death utopia. It's very strange when you think about what we've tried to do here. It's gone beyond just normal basic safety and precautions to this sort of, there must be zero deaths. There must be zero cases. It's it's a very, and, and a whole lot of bizarre draconian stuff has come on the back of that. And so this is an example that you've got these rules that, that aren't really going to work. They're an absurdity in and of themselves. They, for children and COVID, they are still the safest cohort, unless a child has some sort of underlying health condition, which thankfully is not the majority, then they are um, if they get COVID, they get the mildest version of it and they get all the benefits without all the 
the risks that older age groups have. And yet we're, we're expecting this. And then Michael Baker comes along and says, well, I think two-year-olds should be doing this. I mean, if you think a two-year-old is actually going to wear a mask for more than five minutes, I, I, I think you are an alien from another planet who doesn't understand human existence properly, or you are just being willfully obtuse and not speaking truthfully. I, I just use a spouting anything without even really thinking too much about what you're saying. I mean, think about a two-year-old. Now, of course, we could make two-year-olds wear masks. And the way to do that would be absolutely draconian authoritarians who do great harm to the psychology of children by standing over them and policing them and walking the aisles of their, of their uh, kindergartens and play centres and get that mask back on. Don't touch your face. Right? Imagine that existence. I mean, we could do that, right? That'd be one way of doing it. Because otherwise, it's, this isn't going to happen. And I guess this is going to happen in some schools too. You're going to have these sort of fascist Nazi mask policing going on. And then you introduce all of that into the classroom as well, and you invite, particularly, I think, with the older age groups of children, they start to then decide that they, you, you're always going to have at least one or two in every classroom who are going to decide that their job is to be the sort of the self-appointed mask police of other children, to single them out. You know, it's just, this, this, this is just really bad policy. And here's Michael Baker saying, let's take that bad policy and we will make the worst possible version we can of it. Just It's just so insane to me. Someone proposing this makes me question his, um, his capability in any area of expertise in this. I'm serious. If, this, if he's willing to propose this idea publicly, I think to myself, this is just so out of touch with reality and so unintelligent that it really makes me question everything else that he's been saying as well. I know one school sent out a, 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 here's an example of what some schools are sending out. As I said, I, I think schools are sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, but I know of one New Zealand school that sent out information about mask wearing that just really wasn't helpful. I think if schools are going to communicate about this, what they should do is just say, look, the government has asked us to do this. This is not something we've come up with. Our board, our principal didn't invent this idea. It's not our idea. It's, it's the government has asked us to do this. The reason being is because their health experts believe that there is some benefit in masks. And so therefore, we have to do what they ask us to do. And so here's what the mask wearing requirements are. That's it. Don't, 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 don't get into anything else. But I'll give you an example of a communication that, um, that, that went out. Where I think that just the communication was not properly thought through. So this is from an actual New Zealand primary school, remember? Primary school aged children, not even high school. It says this, mask wearing is one of the most effective ways to prevent you or your child from infecting someone else. But, but there's no reference for that. And the reason there's no reference or footnote for that is because that, that's a highly dubious claim. Mask wearing is one of the most effective ways to prevent you or your child from infecting someone else. Well, from what exactly? And, and honestly, it's just to me, that's just that is a very, very questionable claim. So you've got a school now that's making this scientific claim. There's no backing for it. And then what happens is you, you then start, to, and especially when you look at what the actual, so in the, in the same message, you get this advice that, you know, you can have single use, disposable masks, medical masks and reusable fabric masks with three layers. Um, I understand you can, there's not even a requirement for three layers. That's an interesting thing the school's added there, but... The point is that, in actual fact, <laughs> what you've got here is there's no mention of of, um, of N95 masks at all. 
the most effective tool of all. After you've told people, made this bold claim about mask wearing is one of the most effective ways to prevent you or your child from infecting someone else. And what's interesting about that statement is that it wrongly and unscientifically puts the sort of burden on the person who's doing the breathing out. Uh, again, as I understand it, in actual fact, it's, it's about if you want to make masks work effectively, then what you do is you have people who are breathing in wearing them as well. And you see, see, see what I mean? It's, it's a prophylaxis that has to be a dual-use prophylaxis, not just the people breathing out. Those who are going to breathe in your breath need to be wearing it as well. And even then, even then, you have to use it properly and all that kind of stuff. But it's sort of just thrown out there. But this is the bit that I found probably really troubling, is um, where it says on one level wearing masks when indoors can be compared to the need to wear a sun hat when outdoors. Yet there is one major difference. If you choose not to wear a sun hat, it is that individual that has to suffer the consequences. If you choose not to wear a mask, it may be everyone else in the room and their close contacts who have to suffer the consequences. With this in mind, we encourage you to have robust conversations with your children about the responsibility of wearing a mask. I'm sorry, but that is a shocking level of emotional blackmail that is completely unwarranted and unjustified from a school, I think. Because what's happened, remember this is primary school age children, and here you have the management of a school who are putting all the responsibility for the transmission of a highly transmissible respiratory virus upon these children. So in other words, if, if you choose not to wear a mask, it may be everyone else in the room in their close contacts who have to suffer the consequences. Well, it's also equally true that it could be you and your close contacts, right? So you get the COVID from someone else who's wearing a mask but not wearing it properly and breathes on you. So there's none of that. It's all on you and what you will do to other people. And remember, these are primary school age children. And I really hope no parents in the school go home and have this conversation along these lines with their kids. Because think about a child who's now burdened with this completely unjust and unfair psychological burden. And some children will really take this to heart. If I don't wear my mask properly, I could harm or possibly even... I mean, everyone knows what COVID can do to some people, right? I will possibly even harm or seriously harm or possibly even kill some people. That's absurd. That's the kind of statement. If you remember my interview with Laura Dodsworth last year, she's written that great book about the, the state of fear and how these uh, various governments in the West were using these fearful tactics to try and scare people into doing things. This is an example of that. It's not how you engage on these issues. It's not humane and it's not, I don't think it's ethical communication. It's not treating people as rational adults. It's not being fully truthful. It's simply uh, scaremongering. And it's putting an unfair burden on them. And now what you've got is you're going to have some kids who are going to take this to heart potentially and sort of look at, oh my gosh, you know, little Timmy took his mask off for two minutes because it's just too hot and he can't hear it. But handle it. Timmy, put it on and you'll kill someone. You know, that kind of mentality. This is crazy. They're absolutely crazy. It really makes me wonder about what's going to go on in this particular school. And I, I hope other schools sort of, as I said, the communication should be just really... Straight to the point. Look, the government's asked us to do this because they believe that this can be a helpful tool. Here's what the regs are. Don't don't burden anyone. Don't put these uh, undue um, emotional blackmail on people. And, and, and don't overstate the facts. Mask wearing, particularly amongst children, will be a highly ineffective tool. End of story. End of story. I put money on it right now. Why? Because a mask is a highly technical piece of equipment that even most adults are not getting right. 
and you've got to wear the right one and you've got to use it properly. And that is a very involved and highly complicated process, really, in the, in the scheme of things. It's not a one and done sort of thing. And so it's just nonsense to think that this will have any meaningful effect for children. It, it, it just won't. It just won't. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's really all I want to say about that. Um, the next issue I want to touch on before I jump into the, the New Zealand media witch hunt is this article that I saw was being shared on social media. When was it being shared? I think it was sort of earlier this year. Yeah, it was, middle of January. And it's an op-ed from The Guardian, and it's from an oncologist. And the headline is this, My bile rises. My first thought was, hmm, maybe it's a gallbladder issue. <laughs> but my bile rises as I'm asked to move my dying cancer patient out of ICU to make room for an unvaccinated man with COVID. Here we go again. This drumbeat that has been incessant throughout this pandemic, this morally highly questionable, uh, I think it's more than that in some cases, just absolutely a moral call for treating of people who have chosen not to get the Pfizer vaccine or a particular vaccine technology, because it seems that's most people, that's their issue. It's not that they don't want a vaccine. It's that they would prefer not to use this particular brand new technology. As I heard a couple of scientists saying over the holidays, I was listening to their podcast, they said, look, really what you've got here with mRNA vaccines is a very impressive looking proof of concept, but it's not the right tool for the job. And that seems really apparent now. Remember how we were promised that these mRNA vaccines were the latest and greatest and they were so great because they could handle variants? Remember that? I remember that. They were, that's how they were sold. This will be like no other vaccine because you'll just be able to recode the vaccine for a new variant really quickly and, and update on the fly. That has not happened once during this pandemic. I don't think they can do that. I think that's possibly a step that might come next, but I don't think they can do it yet. It was oversold. We were told that this thing would stop the transmission. Well, and we were told that up front. And then when it became clear that it wouldn't do that, the, the sort of the story changed. We are now discovering that the actual longevity of protection is not really that long at all. You know, particularly for some groups of people, it seems that even a third and fourth is sort of this minimal gain for this. The World Health Organization is now saying, look, this is not a trajectory that we can carry on with. You can't just keep giving people endless boosters. And I think part of that is a recognition that there's uncertainty about what this is actually doing to the human person, just pumping this therapeutic serum into people on an ongoing basis. You know, so the, the vaccines themselves... Uh, initially were were oversold. And then what happened was this drumbeat started happening where it was like, well, if you don't get this particular vaccine, you choose not to get this new vaccine, and instead you're someone who's saying, well, I, you know, calculate, I do a risk calculation and I think I'm in a, a situation where I'm probably okay to, to wait for something else. It seems most people that was what, it's been my experience anyway. I want to be vaccinated. I'm not yet, but I want to be. I'm just, my preference is to go with a more tried and trusted vaccine technology. And I don't think that makes me irrational or unreasonable. 
to, to chart that course of action. I did the risk analysis of my situation, my circumstance, and I, I took a punt, and that's, that's what I've chosen to do. Now, I don't think that's unreasonable, and I certainly don't think that warrants treating me as a second-class citizen or suggesting that, as this drumbeat has been beating throughout this pandemic, that I should not receive equal health care treatment like other people. It's, it's just insane, but this is this drumbeat that's been beating the whole time, and this is sort of just the latest enunciation from those who are beating this drum. So basically, she starts by talking about a patient of hers. Let me just give you a quick paragraph summary. While I was away, her disease progressed, so a cancer patient of hers. She had begun aggressive chemotherapy, and days later she fell ill. Expecting a conversation about a temporary setback, so she receives a phone call about this patient. She's expecting a conversation about a temporary setback, I encounter a gravely ill woman who is intubated with failing organs on maximal life support. So this is pretty serious. This person is dying. And they have, according to this article, have had cancer for a long time. It doesn't say exactly how long, but she is, um, she describes her, the author, as one of my long-term patients. So remember, she, her, her disease, the cancer had progressed. She's begun aggressive chemotherapy to try and fight back and, and something goes wrong. So she's on maximal life support. And then she says this, a few hours later, the intensive care doctor calls. She's very unwell, he says, before getting to the real point. I'm asking you if we can make an early call to palliate and discharge her from ICU. So palliative care... This doctor is saying, look, she's she's at death's door. And so the oncologist says, well, when? And he says, now. My disbelief must be open because it prompts the rueful explanation that a COVID patient needs an intensive care bed. The pieces fall together instantly. With an intensive care at capacity, I am being asked to move my patient to make room for another. After all, your patient does have incurable cancer. Now, I would say that's a little bit disingenuous because as she's already said, it's not simply that this patient has incurable cancer. It's not simply that. It's also the fact that this is a long-term cancer patient. So this person has had cancer for a while. It's also the fact that the cancer has returned, uh, uh, has, has developed um, in quite a dramatic and uh, negative way. And so therefore aggressive chemotherapy was required. And it's also the fact that this patient has now in a situation where her, her body is dying and she's on maximal life support. Right? That, that's, that's all of that factors into this very difficult ethical quandary that these doctors find themselves in. It's not simply saying, well, this patient has incurable cancer. It's, it's actually more than that. I think that's just a, it's a little bit disingenuous. There's all these other factors, and they are part of the equation that would have to be considered when you were making this very difficult decision. And I don't, I don't think it would be easy to make at all, but that's sadly the reality of you know, hard ethical choices happen at the hard edge of life where things are, are, are really challenging and difficult, particularly in the medical environment. Carry on. My bile rises, and even as I know it's a petty question, I can't help asking, is the COVID patient vaccinated? It's interesting, eh? That's the first thing she thought. She thought, is the COVID patient vaccinated? No, he says wearily. That's why he is so sick. 
And she goes on a bit from there. Uh, what happens is that that she says, well, I don't want to give up this ICU bed. And so I'm not sure what the outcome was for that other man who was sick with COVID, but he didn't get the ICU bed. Her terminally ill and dying patient held on to the bed for a little bit longer. Now, here's where we finish up. My patient died quickly in intensive care. So as you can see, this is much more serious than just a patient with an incurable illness. This was a patient who was dying and in the final stages of life. So my patient died quickly in intensive care. When we spoke, her family was grateful for our compassion and care and could not fault the system. We don't know what happened to the other patient. If he endured a prolonged wait, his family might feel let down by the delay, though his certain extended stay in intensive care will impact the next patient. In other words, how dare he? Now, this is to me, this is just absolutely shocking. And it's, it's so interesting, this particular example, because it's, it's not, in many ways to me, I look at this and I think this would be a heck of a difficult situation to be in and I wouldn't want to be the person having to make this call. But it's not really an ethical quandary when you evaluate the various factors involved in the situation. Because what you've got here on the one side is an unvaccinated person who needs ICU intervention. And if they receive that ICU intervention, I mean, we don't know that. See, this is the problem. We don't know the full details. So first of all, we don't know why this person wasn't vaccinated. There may have been lots of reasons why this person wasn't vaccinated. have got nothing to do with what's being implied here as some sort of petty selfishness or conspiracy theory, any of that sort of stuff. There might be lots of really good reasons why this person wasn't vaccinated. It's never, it never explains that. And I'd be interested to know more about the backstory. It's very easy to talk about people in abstracts, but people aren't abstracts. Patients have lives and they have histories and they're complex creatures with complex psychologies and and, and life stories and histories and everything else that's, that's, you know, all part of it. But you've got this person who needs ICU intervention, who has COVID, and we know that if you, you know, all things being equal, that in a lot of situations that can be really helpful. And, and we know now we have a, we're a lot better at helping people in that situation. So it's, you know, the, the chances I think are almost certainly going to be a lot better if you give them that care than a terminally ill person who has had uh, what what she, this doctor describes as um, a gravely ill woman, intubated with failing organs, so multiple organ failure, and on maximal life support. So that that's a person who's clearly in the final stages of their life. That person is it's highly unlikely that they're going to come back. Could be a miraculous comeback, but it's highly so. If you're going to have have to weigh things here, I would imagine that probably that the waiting would go towards the other patient. And yet she's held on and said no. So first of all, she asked, well, is it, are they vaccinated? It's sort of this bizarre sort of spiteful question. Are they vaccinated? But And so it's not, It's and this is the interesting question when you think about the ethics of all of this. It, it, it's not the actual situation of the two patients that matters so much here. Instead, it is a medical choice that one of them has made that is being used as the yardstick. That's where the ethical problem lies. 
did they choose to undergo a particular medical therapy? And if they didn't, then they should be looked down upon, that it's okay for your bile to rise and for you to treat them as if they're a second class, sort of irresponsible. There's a dehumanizing factor here that's really, really not just unhealthy, but unethical. So it's not actually the circumstance. Well, who is the patient? What are their chances? What are their illnesses? All those kinds of things that you have to factor in and these difficult choices that have to be made with made you know, the at the, the the bleeding edge of triage and, and and sort of, you know, life or death medical care. But it's about a medical choice that they made or didn't make to have a particular therapy. And then all of a sudden you look down your nose and say, Well, you know, it doesn't matter that my patient is actually a terminally ill person who's on maximal life support, multiple organ failure, and who is absolutely dying in the final stages of life. It's um, it's the fact that my patient is a better class of patient because of a choice. That's really what's being done here. When I, when I read this, my first thought was, well, let's frame this in another way and see how this sounds ethically. Um, and that's this. So imagine the same article. My bile rises as I'm asked to move my dying cancer patient out of ICU to make room for an overweight man with diabetes. What about this one? My bile rises as I'm asked to move my dying cancer patient out of ICU to make room for a smoker with lung cancer. Oh, how's this one? Try this one on for size. My bile rises as I'm asked to move my dying cancer patient out of ICU to make room for a heart attack victim who hasn't exercised in years. See, you see the problem here? This is not how humane healthcare is or ever should be done, but that's what we've allowed this to become. Because of fear and control and all of those kind of things. It's just extremely immoral. And, and, and I find this really alarming. Because we've heard similar sentiments here. It is not good. It's not moral. And then we sort of pride ourselves. Here's where the real problem comes. As we then turn around and pride ourselves on our COVID response. And we pride ourselves on being the supposedly kind and moral country. And we're doing things like that. That is troubling. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not surprised that that attitude has crept in because we are a country which has, well, this same particular government introduced and accepted a very extreme abortion law at the right at the start of this pandemic, start of 2020. One of Jacinda Ardern's pet projects introduced abortion, according to the legal experts, and the way the law is drafted, I've spoken to a highly regarded and very experienced legal expert who says, look, if you could find an abortionist willing to carry out an abortion right up to and even during birth, there is nothing in that new law to stop that from happening. The law would allow that to happen. That's how extreme this is. So if we can do that at that end of life, why are we surprised that once people are born, we start treating their human dignity with that same level of absolute disregard. And we start acting in this unethical way. But then we turn around and say, this is where the real problem is. We say, well, we're kind, we're moral people, and we're better than those other countries. And it's like, okay, well, are we really, though? If this is our starting point? Because what happens next? What's the next layer of the onion to peel away as we say, well, we've accepted and tolerated this kind of behavior. 
Let's start denying them care once the pandemic's over. You know, it, it, it's just, yeah. The other thing to notice, did you notice the use of the word man there as well? I don't know, it stuck out to me. In, 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 a, in a newspaper renowned for the whole trying not to inf- uh, to offend people with sort of what they would call heteronormativity and cis-gendered sort of normalism, you know, talking about males and females, until we talk about persons and pregnant people and all that kind of stuff, all of a sudden the word man takes, uh, and, and the gender of the patient. So it's not an unvaccinated person or an unvaccinated, unvaccinated patient. It's an unvaccinated man with COVID. It's just, it just stuck out to me. I couldn't help but sense that maybe there was something um, deliberate in the use of that, uh, that pronoun. <laughs> but what you've got here is a, it's, it's a, it's not subtle, very powerful though, invective to, to other and dehumanize an entire sector of society. And it's coming from a, a doctor, a medical professional. Um, it, it says a lot about the state of ethics in our country. And I think, by the way, that that's a, it's a sort of canary in the coal mine. And it's why ethically we're in a really, we're in a very problematic position. And what, what, what this whole pandemic has shown to me is that it doesn't take much to tip the apple cart up. And that if you have anything even slightly more serious than this, then we could be in real ethical trouble. All sorts of very bad behaviours would start happening. And very unjust treatments, even worse than what we've seen, because uh, it doesn't take much. Right, let's jump on to the two main stories. Gosh, this is, um, <laughs> I'm looking at the time, how long we've been going. This, this could be the, the longest episode ever. You're going to get your real sort of money's worth episode here today. <laughs> First episode back. Could be a two-hour one. We'll see how, we'll see what happens. Um, so yeah, the, the, the media witch hunt in New Zealand, and there's been several different um, variations that have gone on over this, over the holidays. You probably knows to your own but this is one that happened in my local area and so I'm going to do something a little unusual now and I can't link you to the story because I'm you can hear this rustling that's me opening up a newspaper the northern outlook it's our sort of midweek mail rag that comes free once a week in the in the paper and this is the headline article big front page article the only article on the front page it's the main story on the front page of the January 26th edition of the northern outlook and it's got a big photo of the guy. Remember, this is a private citizen. And it says this, the headline, Unvaxxed pastor has pass. And I think, oh, that's, that's interesting. An unvaxxed pastor has pass. What kind of pass could they be speaking of? I, I wonder. One's mind does turn to all sorts of bizarre imaginings. <laughs> we all know what sort of pass, right? <laughs> Martin Van Bayen. So this guy, if you don't know Martin Van Bayen, you know, certainly is a, a journalist here with some pedigree, has written this article for the Northern Outlook. Let me read it to you. A Destiny Church pastor known for his refusal to get a COVID-19 vaccination because he trusted his faith to protect him appears to have been vaccinated. So even that first statement, think about how loaded that is. He's, get, he's, he's refusing because what a silly superstitious fool. He's trusting his faith to protect him. You know, like it's it's clearly in the negative there. Christchurch Destiny Church pastor Derek Tate recently told his flock via his Facebook page he was not getting vaccinated. I personally am not getting COVID vaccine, he wrote. But that's my choice slash decision. No hate, no judgment. If you do get vaccinated, each man and woman 
has to make up their own informed decision. Sorry, has to make their own informed decision. My faith in Christ and belief in the strength and health of my immune system means I don't need it, and if I did get it, it would not harm me. End quote. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because what you can see there clearly is he's actually not simply trusted his faith. So the opening statement already in this article is 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 wrong. So it said that he said that he didn't get it because he trusted his faith to protect him. Well, uh, in actual fact, what he did was he moved. He said, you know, my faith in Christ and my belief in the strength of my health and my immune system means I don't need to get it. Uh, so. Yeah, and not just that, but he also said that he has faith that even if he got the vaccine, it wouldn't harm him either. I guess maybe he got COVID, as maybe I was referring to there. I could be wrong on that, but it, it sounds like maybe he's talking about the vaccine. If I did get it, it would not harm me. So maybe that's COVID. But anyway, however, last Tuesday, this is where the controversy happens. Remember, again, this is a private citizen. This is on the front page of a newspaper here in New Zealand. Private citizen. This is the level we've got to. And this is why I'm calling this a witch hunt. However, last Tuesday, Tate produced a vaccine pass at a Rangiora eatery in North Canterbury, which stuff has agreed not to name. <gasps> oh no, what has gone on here? This is such a, an important story. Pressing. Public interest is high. We need to know. I, I didn't even know this guy. I live here and I didn't even know this man until I read this story. And public interest, dream on. Absolutely no public interest at all in this. This is, this is just... It's insane. Absolutely insane. My wife actually was one of the first who saw it. And she said to me, did you see that story? Now, here's the thing. Stuff has said they're not going to name. Why? I think if you're going to go after, they've publicly named and put a photograph of this guy on the front page of the newspaper, but they are not going to name the eatery, which clearly rang the newspaper to dob this man in. And, and then has such a lack of courage of their convictions, because by the way, there's no other way that the, this reporter would know about this unless the owners of the store had rung up and contacted the newspapers. But, but, but the, the, this outlet has such courage of its convictions, you'll see in a moment what I mean by that, but it doesn't want to be named. I'll tell you why it doesn't want to be named, because it knows there'd be negative blowback, and so they want to do harm to someone else, but they don't want to suffer any consequence, like financially, for targeting this man. As I understand it, it is the subway here in Rangiora. I read it in another article, so some other outlet decided to name the place. When I heard that, I was like, okay, well, that's, uh, I'm not going to be going there ever again. End of story. But, and I, it's not simply because of this. It's, let me explain what happened, and I'll tell you why I'm not going there ever again. Okay, however, last Tuesday, Tate produced a vaccine pass at a Rangiora eatery in North Canterbury, which stuff has agreed not to name. There's a bit of a redundant sentence, by the way, too, at a Rangiora eatery in North Canterbury. Well, Rangiora is in North Canterbury, so if you go to a Rangiora eatery, you can't be anywhere else but North Canterbury. Anyway, personal peeve of mine. I'm not the world's greatest writer either, by the way, but I, I notice these kinds of things. Maybe we'll get it. I'm turning curmudgeonly old man. The owner of the outlet said Tate had ended his premises about midday on Tuesday. Tate, who wasn't wearing a mask, as apparently he has an exemption, showed the vaccine pass on his cell phone, holding it above the counter. I said, I didn't think you guys got vaccinated. Well, the business owner, that's no right of yours to even be saying that. If the man produces a vaccine pass, he's met the legal requirements. You don't then have the right to start questioning why or why not he might have got a vaccine. 
Uh, anyway, I, I said, I don't think you guys get got vaccinated, he said. Who told you that? So that was his reply. The business owner told stuff. He then told Tate his business did not serve Destiny Church people. This is the problem. Just have a listen to this. Not because of their religion, but because of Tate's behaviour after the terror attack on two Christchurch mosques. Members of Destiny Church met opposite the Al-Noor Majid Mosque to proclaim Christchurch a Christian city on April 22, 2019. It was the day the mosque met for its first call to prayer since the shootings on March 15th. At that time, Tate said his group opposed the national broadcast of the first Muslim call to prayer by the mosque following the March 15th terror attack. The purpose was to stand out in the open and to declare that Christchurch and New Zealand belongs to Jesus Christ, who is the one true God, he said. Now, that's, that's why this business owner is refusing to serve him. Think about that. An incident that happened, th- what, three years ago? Almost three years ago. And yeah, it's provocative. It's not something I would have done. But at the same time, it's just a group of people expressing their opinion in a public context. As I said, it's not something I would have done, but I understand why they did it. And as I remember at the time, there was this sort of this bizarre, weird, confused, like this, you know, formerly Christian country that doesn't know how to respond now to crisis. So you had people standing outside mosques. You might remember this, singing John Lennon's Imagine. Because that's all they knew how to do. Imagine is an atrocious song, by the way. You're standing outside a mosque singing Imagine immediately after a mass shooting at a mosque. I think you're doing something even more insensitive probably than, or certainly on a par with what Destiny Church did. You might not realize it, but that's what you're doing. You're You're singing a socialist anthem that literally has the line... Imagine there's no religion, and the reason why we would do that is because, according to the song, the world would be a better place if we didn't have any religion. And you're standing outside a mosque, the victims of religious, violent crime and terror, and you're standing outside a a mosque singing that song. Why did that happen? Because the confused modern New Zealand has lost its Christian, its fundamental heart and understanding and, 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 and its depth of character. One might call it sociological character, it's cultural character, it's been lost. And so we don't know how to respond in these situations, and so we do crazy things. We think, well, what's a sad song that I know that mentions religion? I don't really know Amazing Grace, so um, let's go with John Lennon's Imagine. And that's what we did, and it was sung more than once. <laughs> um, and, and so, But there was this, that, that sort of stuff was going on. There was the sort of over, um, I know of a, a Catholic school for Pete's sake that actually instigated the Muslim call to prayer as a response. My, my thought was, what are you doing? Like, as Catholics, that's not our response. Our response is to stand in solidarity with these people, but to do that with Christ. And so we pray for them and with them when we stand with them. We, we don't copy their religious practices which are inconsistent with our own. It just shows a complete lack of understanding of who we are. Very, very bizarre. Very bizarre. And I saw someone trying to suggest that that was the same as the Angelus bell at midday. 
No, it's not. It's nothing like the Angelus Bell. Very different. That call to prayer contains a theological statement which is in disagreement with our Catholic traditions. <laughs> Just so bizarre. So bizarre. Anyway, but, but so people got a bit crazy about it. And you'd have to say, as often happens in these situations, this is a bit of lack of balance. And so you get a group that comes out, it's not known for being tactful, and so they do this. As I said, it's not something I would have done. But at the end of the day, it's just a, a, it's something I disagree with doing. That's it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't treat this person as a second-class citizen. I wouldn't deny them service because of that. But that's what this business owner has been doing, apparently. This whole, we don't serve your kind in here. Oh, my gosh. You know? It's like, well, well, I'm not going there again. And by the way, I've heard stories from people I know personally who had, uh, who had um, family members who worked for that particular establishment, and those people, and they said they were not treated well at all by the owners. So possibly some sort of introspective examination of their own ethics might be in order before they go, go passing judgment on others. Now, let me carry on. The business owner said the shootings had shocked him. Well, the, to mate, they shocked everyone, and rightly so. They were vile and repugnant evil. And he found the Destiny Church rally to reclaim Christchurch for Christianity abhorrent. That, to me, sounds like a prejudicial anti-religious sentiment, if I'm honest, because I wouldn't find it abhorrent. I, I just wouldn't. Even if I was in a country where you had a group of Muslims who stood and, and, and reclaimed a country for Allah after a terror attack, I wouldn't find that abhorrent. I would see that there is actually a correct instinct in that. They're trying to go back to that which is spiritual, that which is good, and that which is true, even if they uh, um, haven't got what I think is the fullness of truth there. I see the instinct itself is good. I don't, it's not abhorrent. So something that speaks to me that maybe there's a deeper underlying prejudice with this person, that they have an anti-religious or anti-Christian sentiment and that's why they found it abhorrent you know I mean mean, maybe there's something else going on but it seems sort of strange to me that you would go to abhorrent is how you would feel about it because it's just such an extreme reaction I think to something that doesn't really warrant that kind of reaction Uh, here's the, the article carries on we had just returned from a trip to Oman Jordan and Egypt when the mosque shootings happened we had a fantastic experience and everyone we met was so lovely. And I thought, that's not really, I'm, I'm not, sh- <laughs> to me that, you know, I don't, I don't know. Look, that's uh, someone said, look, I can't be a racist. I've, I've got some moldy fringe, you know. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of those kind of statements. <laughs> I can't be a sexist. My mother was a woman <laughs> and she was lovely. But it's kind of strange. And I, my first thought was, ah, oh, so you did some touristy things in those countries, but I bet you didn't go and talk to actually Christians in those countries and see how they're being treated. And uh, I bet you didn't actually try and convert from Islam to Christianity while you were in that country, you know, any of those places and see what would happen. It's sort of a bizarre statement to make anyway, really, uh, because they don't. one thing doesn't really have anything to do with the other. You know, the, the, the mosque shooting should have never happened. It was a grave, abhorrent evil. And it's vile wherever it happens. But just because you had a good time in Jordan and Amman, it doesn't mean that what Destiny did was somehow repugnant. It's kind of weird. Anyway, the eatery owner said Tate had argued with him when he was asked to leave. And I would argue, too. I said, what are you doing kicking me out? This is insane. And he decided to call the police. Either the vaccine pass was false or Tate was telling his followers one thing and doing another, he said. Oh, big story here. Breaking news. People are hypocrites. But it might not be hypocritical. I'll, t- I'll tell you why in a, in a second. 
They lead vulnerable people down a pathway they are not prepared to go down themselves, he said, according to sources. But by the way, that's not what, if you read his, remember his original social media post? He says, no judgment. He says, here's why I'm not getting the vaccine. But if you want to get, any man or woman wants to get the vaccine for themselves, no judgment. So he didn't actually tell people not to get vaccinated. Remember? He didn't. So let's that's, that's just clear that up straight away. Um, according to sources, Tate has also been banned from the coffee culture outlet in Rangiora due to his apparent vaccination status. He would sit outside with vaccinated people and make it difficult for staff to enforce the law, a patron said. Now, I'm not sure what that is. I mean, so I, look, this is what that is there is that's pure rumor. That is pure gossip in a story. So a journalist got some gossip. Because they haven't verified anything. They've just put vague assertions in there that make it sound really bad. For all we know, there was another incident like this where he went and tried to get a coffee, couldn't, and sat outside and, and was annoyed about it and and um, made a bit of a scene. And I think rightly so. If you've been denied service because you haven't had a medical choice, I, I don't really object to people making a scene about that. I, I haven't. It's not a choice I've done, but I understand why people would. And I think it's important that people do push back even in ways that we might find socially uncomfortable as long as they're not doing anything unethical or violent or immoral to other people to to protest then I think it's important society hears those voices that is the prophetic edge speaking to us and saying look what you're doing here is not good this is your guilty conscience speaking up it's uncomfortable it's supposed to be uncomfortable and we should feel the discomfort of that because if the moment we don't feel the discomfort I read a fascinating op-ed actually or an article about this over the holiday break where a person talked about one of the big issues with when initially when you have the sort of the rollout of what happened in in Nazi Germany. And by the way, I'm not comparing people who are unvaccinated and being treated as second class citizens with the Jews here. So just, just so we're clear about that. But the, this article pointed out that one of the big issues was that all of a sudden, so the, the first thing that happened was they are removed from society. So they, they're not allowed to be present with everyone else. That's the first step. And the person said that creates a problem in and of itself that's very serious because all of a sudden they become an invisible dehumanized group. So they're not around you to remind you of what's going on and that makes other bad behaviors even easier. And so that that voice, that conscience, that voice of protest is, is a really important thing because it's, it, it helps us to remember there is an invisible group of people here, an invisible minority who are being treated unjustly in our country in different ways. And that's not a good thing. Um, but yeah, I do, but here's the thing, though. We don't know what this means. It's just gossip. It's pure gossip. So this journalist has had someone else tell him, well, according to sources, whenever you read that, that's sources. <laughs> Honestly, sources is now just a cover word that the mainstream media use that could mean anything. It really could. Inside sources have told us Sources from inside the Prime Minister's office. And then you discover it's the person who cleans the Prime Minister's office once a week. You know, that, that's, that's how sources gets used now. Sources makes it. Sources, you use the word sources here and you, all you're doing is you are glamorizing and dressing up gossip in the language of professional journalism. But it's not professional journalism. It's nothing more than gossip. So according to sources, Tate had also been banned from the coffee culture outlet and rung Euro due to his apparent vaccination status. The reporter could have verified that. They could have gone to Coffee Culture and Rangura, rang them and said, have you banned this man and verified it? Um, but they didn't. Well, they don't appear to have because it's not in the article here. But they reported it anyways, if it was true. 
And then they've just reported the secondhand story, which doesn't even give you any details. It's very vague and it makes it sound like this guy might even be engaged in sort of hostile, like criminally hostile, aggressive behaviours. There's no details. It's pure gossip designed to just, this is a hit piece. It's a witch hunt. Absolute witch hunt. And then it finishes with this. Tate was asked for comment but did not respond. Good on him. I wouldn't respond either. Wouldn't dignify this drivel. Honestly, this is the equivalent of the town gossip wandering around the neighbourhood, leaning over, over every fence and saying, have you heard about that awful Mr Tate? Have you heard what he's been doing? Oh, I heard. I heard he went to coffee culture and was banned. Do you know what I heard? I heard he was outside eating puppies. <laughs> you know, it's, it's that. That's what this is. Front page of the Northern Outlook. Private citizen. Here's the thing, by the way. Um... Uh, it, it's quite conceivable that he may have, because they don't give you a timeline for when he posted this on Facebook. It says, uh, where is it, uh, recently. Um, I'm just trying, let me go back here. I'm looking at this piece of paper here. Um, bum, 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 bum. Yeah, he recently told his flock via Facebook. But what does recently mean? Like that may have been, for example, late November, he posted that on Facebook, I'm not getting vaccinated. And then he changed his mind. You know what I mean? It, it, could, have been, uh, it could have been July. And he's changed his mind as COVID's rolled and decided to get vaccinated. Now he's got himself a vax pass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like are people not entitled to change their minds? It could be, I, don't, I don't know. The point is, why am I even speculating on this? Because quite frankly, this is a private citizen. This is not a matter of public interest. This is the media just showing us. You've seen your journalists here in New Zealand writing this kind of drivel. It's like, okay, thanks, Martin. How about you get back to work now and start doing your actual job? I'll tell you why they've targeted this man, because he's, a, he's got a direct link to Brian Tamaki. And Brian Tamaki, you'll notice, has been targeted. I'm, I'm not a Destiny Church member. I'm not uh, the biggest fan of how Tamaki conducts himself in different arenas. But I'm, not, but I'm not hostile to the man either. He's just a dude doing his thing. I think if a few more of us got a bit less hostile and a bit less tribal, probably a lot more of the steam and the heat to be taken out of this stuff. But anyway, that's another story. So he's associated, he's got a direct link with Brian Tamaki. And Tamaki is considered a threat, I think, to... Uh, and again, I'm not being cynical, but I would call it sort of the elite classes in New Zealand. So he's a threat, first of all, because he has a large group of people who do follow and listen to him. He's considered a threat because he is Māori and has a strong presence within Māoridom. And, and clearly some don't like that, I think. And quite frankly, I think probably fair to say it's probably, it seems to be um, predominantly white boys who don't like that. White liberal elites who would prefer that that he just towed the party line, but they sort of they they talk a good game about anti-racism and about respecting Maoridom. But what they, what my experience, what they generally mean is they want Maoridom to actually agree with what they want for Maoridom, so their vision of ideology and reality. And as soon as you get a Maori voice that doesn't, all of a sudden, <laughs> the commitment is actually to ideology, not to respect for Maoridom. So there's that factor. And then, of course, he is already and has been deemed for many years a dangerous heretic because uh, an ideological heretic, because right from the beginning, he refused to accept and buy into the gay marriage narrative. And because he didn't do that, they straight away that that, that ever since then, 
that moment, he was put on the the threat list, the enemy list, the heretic list, and that's how they've treated him. And it's been constant. It's been absolutely ongoing. The the media coverage of of this is the irony too. It's the Barbara Streisand effect where you publicize something that not many people would have known about otherwise and all of a sudden you're just amplifying the voice and the reach of it. And that's the irony of it. They're giving him more. When he was arrested, Tamaki was arrested, for example, I don't think that was the response to that at all. The reason they did it, though, was because of all of those reasons. He's, he's high profile. He's considered a threat. He's got a following. They wanted a scapegoat. Um, but what they've done is they've made him into a martyr now. So, yeah, it's, um, and that's why they've gone after Mr. Tate here because he's directly associated with him. But he's a private citizen at the end of the day, and this is not public interest. And I read this story, and my first thought, I just said this to my wife, is what about Clark Gayford? Remember Clark Gayford? We all remember him, right? And remember what he did a couple of weeks ago, which got, I think, far too little mainstream media attention and scrutiny. Meanwhile, they're writing stories about private citizens and about are they vaccinated or unvaccinated? Is he a hypocrite? Uh, spoiler alert, he is, because, spoiler alert, we all are hypocrites. It seems to be the bane of our human condition, our Achilles heel, our ability to proclaim one thing and then fail to live up to the standards that we proclaim and expect of others. We are all hypocrites. I am, that's for sure. Anybody who says they're not a hypocrite, don't believe them. <laughs> we all are, right? It's not newsworthy. It's not newsworthy at all. Um, but what about Clark Gayford? So remember Clark Gayford? A couple of weeks ago, it comes to light that he did something that I, th- I, I can't wrap my head around. That I, I think it's very serious what he did. And the media, and, and even I saw people in the media trying to downplay this thing, running interference for the man. So you have a, a musician who's at that music festival that's associated with the DJ Omicron. <laughs> DJ Omicron, that'd be a good name for you, wouldn't it? Not right now, probably. Like calling you beer Corona. Uh, but uh, DJ, the DJ with the Omicron and the... Remember that? And, and, and there was a mus- some musicians who were associated with that festival. They were told, look, you have to go and get tested. Now, that means going to a testing station and getting um, a PCR test. These guys didn't want to do that. They wanted to get a rapid antigen test. I guess they didn't want to go the full, the full hog, the full nasal route. To quote, was it Hot Shots? Ain't no man taking that route with me. <laughs> if you've seen Hot Shots, you'll know what that quote's about. Um, but uh, so, they, so they decided that what they would do is they would, um, they would go and get a rapid antigen test. So they go to the chemist, and the chemist tells them, right, they say, well, look, rapid antigen testing is not um, available yet in New Zealand for anybody other than travellers. And I think at that stage it was also people leaving Auckland. So people getting on planes or people leaving Auckland who needed a, 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 a leaving Auckland. Or I think Ferry Crossings as well, was it? You could get a rapid antigen test. And um, that was who they are available for. That was the rule. Now one of these musicians knows Clark Gayford, rings up Clark Gayford and says, hey, we want to get a rapid antigen test. Can you do something? Clark Gayford gets put on. He says, put me on the phone to the chemist. And he says to that chemist owner, Look, mate, the rules are going to change. Give them a, a, a rapid antigen test. In other words, do you know who I am? I'm Clark Gayford. I'm the Prime Minister's special friend. <laughs> I'm the Prime Minister's fiance. And trust me, mate, you, sh- you have to give them. I, I know. And the rules are changing, so you can give them one. 
Well, well, well. None of that was true. It's a, I think that's a very, very serious abuse of privilege and position. It's a fascinating incident. And I think it deserved a lot more media scrutiny. The media has certainly been going after um, national MPs with much greater scrutiny, I've noticed. One particular MP, female Māori MP, has come under a lot of scrutiny the last couple of weeks. But, uh, but, but Clark Gayford, it was like literally in the news cycle for maybe 24 hours and then gone. Meanwhile, we've got whole articles being written about private citizens about their vaccination status. It, that doesn't matter. This is a public interest thing. Why was Clark Gayford doing this? Why did he feel that he could do this? What, did the Prime Minister, you know, what, what is her reaction to this? What is being done to ensure that this doesn't happen? Are there other areas where Clark Gayford has abused his privilege? But this is, to me, this is a pretty serious thing to do. And it certainly warranted a lot more scrutiny, but the media's too busy. They're writing stories about private citizens in North Canterbury and uh, their appearances at Subway restaurants. Yeah, meanwhile, the media are you know, often running interference for the government instead of actually doing their job. It's so frustrating. And by the way, this is one example of it. There's been others over the holidays. Just, just, just adding to the, to, the, to the division within New Zealand society. There's these media outlets when they go on these witch hunts. And this is not the only one I, I saw over the holidays either. There are others as well. And meanwhile, the real questions don't get asked. You know, so while they go after this man and his VAC status, where was the same sort of level of media scrutiny about the fact that you have a music festival that is following the expert mandated red pass rules? Remember that? You know, uh, sorry, the red pass, vaccine pass rules. So vaccinated people only. And it became a super spreader event. Remember that? Well, why didn't get scrutiny about that? About the fact that it was following, like people warned about, I didn't warn about this, all you're going to end up with vaccine pass events is super spreader events, large numbers of people together. And then certainly with Omicron, no protection against transmission or, or contracting that. But even Delta, you can still track, contract and transmit it. So therefore large groups of people together is not what you want if you're trying to be safe. But the government says, no, it's about safety. Well, and Michael Baker says as you, and to the Guardian, it's not about safety. It's about nudging people. It's about coercing people to get vaccinated. You know, that deserves huge media attention. The media should have been all over to say, well, what are you doing? You've been telling us it's to keep us safe. And I noticed, by the way, that next day the government realised that he'd said the quiet part out loud. Michael Baker, he let the cat out of the bag. And so all of a sudden there was this, you know, there, was a, there was a comment from the Prime Minister about, oh, the, the vaccine pass is focused on safety, indoor safety. And, you know, clearly a not-so-subtle attempt at trying to undo. When, uh, when Michael Baker said the quiet bit out loud, but where's the media scrutiny there? There should be. They should be saying, hold on a minute. How can this be safe? How can this be, how can this be safe? When we know that, you know, that the question should be, uh, do you admit, Dr. Bloomfield or Ms. Ardern, do you admit that if you get vaccinated, you can still contract Delta and transmit it to other people? Do you admit that the viral loading at peak with Delta is the same? That, do you accept that study which showed that, that it's the same for vaccinated and unvaccinated people? Okay, then why would you bring large groups of people together and think that that would be somehow safer than a group of unvaccinated people and allowing them to congregate in the same numbers? So you have thousands of people together who are vaccinated and still capable of spreading it, but meanwhile unvaccinated people were only allowed together in groups of 100 or you know, then it became 50. 
and, and then it became 25. And, and now, now we just are at absurd levels of absurdity. The Omicron variant vaccines don't do a darn thing. And yet we've got the situation where a hundred people who are vaccinated can gather together for a wedding or a funeral. But if you're unvaccinated, you can only have, or even one of them is you can only have 25 people. How, how's that? How does that make any sense? How's that about public safety? How's that a healthcare policy? It's not. It's power, control, completely deficient, absurd policy that has no bearing on the current situation that we find ourselves in. It's an absolute absurdity. But I'm sorry, folks, because the media is just too busy. We were pursuing a man, a private citizen. You won't believe what this man has done. He said that he's not going to get vaccinated. And then, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you will not believe this, Shanene, but he appears to have been vaccinated. The outrage of this, this is just, um, this is like, this is so serious, you know, like, like really serious, like, like it's real serious, you know? <laughs> yeah, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I got up, did I, yeah, you can call me out, I got a bit cynical there, didn't I? <laughs> oh, that wasn't cynical, that was, um, comedic, um, comedic critique, we'll call it. Alrighty, let's uh, finish with uh, two things. We'll finish with some good news, but before we do that, let's um, let's talk about this British Medical Journal article, and I want to read this to you because um, th- this is, uh, I think, really, really important. So this is published by the British Medical Journal on the 19th of January 2022. So, gosh, I said a couple of days ago, didn't I, at the start? It's near, what, 11 days ago? <clears throat> or 10 days ago in New Zealand, 11 days ago? And it says this, this is the, the headline, data should be fully and immediately available for public scrutiny. In the pages of the BMJ a decade ago, in the middle of a different pandemic, it came to light that governments around the world had spent billions stockpiling antivirals for influenza that had not been shown to reduce the risk of complications, hospital, hospital admissions or death. The majority of trials that underpinned regulatory approval and government stockpiling of Tamiflu were sponsored by the manufacturer. Most were unpublished. Those that were published were ghostwritten by writers paid by the manufacturer. The people listed as principal authors lacked access to the raw data, and academics who questioned access to the data for independent analysis were denied. By the way, um, next week, in a, probably I think in the free-to-air episode, I'm going to talk about, we'll take you through the Tammy Flu scandal saga for those who don't remember or don't know it. I think it's a very important one to, to consider in the current climate. The Tamiflu saga heralded a decade of unprecedented attention to the importance of sharing clinical trial data. Public battles for drug company data, transparency campaigns with thousands of signatures, strengthened journal data sharing requirements, explicit commitments from companies to share data, new data access website portals, and landmark transparency policies from medicines regulators, all promised a new era and data transparency. So you have the scandal and all these things proposed and promised. This is how we'll fix this problem. Progress was made, but clearly not enough. The errors of the last pandemic are being repeated. Memories are short. Today, despite the global rollout of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, the anonymized, is that how you say that? Anonymized, that's right, isn't it? Participant level data underlying the trials for these new products remain in an remain inaccessible to doctors, researchers and the public and are likely to remain that way for years to come. This is morally indefensible for all trials but especially for those involving major public health interventions. Spot on. And I think also 
um, the fact that um, these are, we're talking here about new technologies often. And that's that I think that's even that really adds to the weight of this. Pfizer's pivotal COVID vaccine trial was funded by the company and designed, run, analysed and authored by Pfizer employees. The company and the contract research organisations that carried out the trial hold all the data. And Pfizer has indicated that that it will not begin entertaining requests, not releasing, but even entertaining requests for the trial data until May 2025. It's over three years from now. 24 months after the primary study completion date. So the study will have been completed for two years and still that's when they will start entertaining requests. Not even guaranteeing they'll, they'll actually let you see the data. Which is listed on clinicaltrials.gov as 15th of May 2023 is the end of the... So two years after the end of that trial. Now, it, may, it would make sense for them not even to entertain it because basically by 2025, that product will be um, absolutely useless, I would say. The time for making money from um, the COVID-19, the Pfizer vaccine, will have well and truly gone because, you know, the, the, the original variants will no longer be a thing. So, yeah, that, that's why. At that point, it, it probably doesn't, it's no harm, no foul. There's no risk to their bottom line if they release the data, basically. The lack of access to data is consistent across vaccine manufacturers. Moderna says data, quote-unquote, may be available with publication of the final study results in 2022. May be available. Data sets will be available, quote-unquote, upon request and subject to review once the trial is complete, which has an estimated primary completion date of 27th of October 2022. So in other words, that's slightly better sounding than Pfizer, may be available, <laughs> doesn't sound promising, but um, it's still, by the end of this year, those, it really won't matter. They will have sold their product. They won't, they won't have a product that is under any financial threat by releasing the data, in other words, because the, th- the need for the product will have passed. As of 31st of December 2021, AstraZeneca may be ready to entertain requests for data from several of its large Phase three trials, but actually obtaining data could be slow going. As its website explains, timelines vary per request and can take up to a year upon full submission of the request. In other words, they've also given themselves the ability to well and truly give the data after the ability to sell the product has been and gone. So, you know, there's no financial risk. Sure, we'll let you see it once we've sold it all to people. Too late then, because they can't get their money back, right? Underlying data for COVID-19 therapeutics are similarly hard to find. Published reports of Regeneron's Phase three trial of its monoclonal antibody therapy flatly state that participant-level data will not be made available to others. Should the drug be approved and not just emergency authorised, sharing will be considered. For Remdesivir, the US National Institutes of Health, which funded the trial, created a new portal to share data, but the data set on offer is limited. An accompanying document explains the longitudinal data set only contains a small subset of the protocol and statistical analysis plan objectives, so not the complete data. We are left with publications but no access to the underlying data on reasonable request. This is worrying for trial participants, researchers, clinicians, journal editors, policymakers and the public 
And by the way, I, they're right. This is concerning, and this this should have been. This is the sort of media scrutiny we need, right? But they're too busy pursuing a pastor in Rangiora over whether or not he got vaccinated secretly or not, right? What happened to him in a subway restaurant? Anyway, carry on. The journals that have published these primary studies may argue that they faced an awkward dilemma caught between making the summary findings available quickly and upholding the best ethical values that support timely access to underlying data. In our view, there is no dilemma. The anonymized individual participant data from clinical trials must be made available for independent scrutiny. And again, because we've had a past, a very recent past incident, we'll talk about next week, what we should have learned from this. Journal editors, systematic reviewers, and the writers of clinical practice guidelines generally obtain little beyond a journal publication, but regulatory agencies receive a far more granular data as part of the regulatory review process. In the words of the European Medicine Agency's former executive director and senior medical officer, quote unquote, relying solely on the publication of clinical trials in scientific journals as the basis of healthcare decisions is not a good idea. Drug regulators have been aware of this limitation for a long time and routinely obtain and assess the full documentation rather than just publications, end quote. So this really matters. Among regulators, the US Food and Drug Administration is believed to receive the most raw data but does not proactively release them. After a Freedom of Information request to the agency for Pfizer's vaccine data, the FDA offered to release 500 pages a month, a process that would take decades to complete, arguing in court that publicly releasing data was slow owing to the need to first redact sensitive information. This month, however, a judge rejected the FDA's offer and ordered the data to be released at a rate of 55,000 pages a month. The data are to be made available on the requesting organisation's website. In releasing thousands of pages of clinical trial documents, Health Canada and the EMA have also provided a degree of transparency that deserves acknowledgement. Until recently, however, the data remained of limited utility, with copious redactions aimed at protecting trial blinding. But study reports with fewer redactions have been available since September 2021, and missing appendices may be accessible through freedom of information requests. Even so, anyone looking for participant-level data sets may be disappointed because Health Canada and the EMA do not receive or analyse these data, and it remains to be seen how the FDA responds to the court order. Moreover, the FDA is producing data only for Pfizer's vaccine. Other manufacturers' data cannot be requested until the vaccines are approved, which the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines are not. Industry, which holds the raw data, is not legally required to honour requests for access from independent researchers. Like the FDA, and unlike its Canadian and European counterparts, the UK's regulator, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, does not proactively release clinical clinical trial documents, and it has also become delayed in posting information released in response to freedom of information requests on its website. And here's the final part of this article. As well as access to the underlying data, transparent decision-making is essential. 
regulators and public health bodies could release details, such as why vaccine trials were not designed to test efficacy against infection and spread of SARS-CoV-2. Had regulators insisted on this outcome, countries would have learnt sooner about the effect of vaccines on transmission and been able to plan accordingly. Bingo, that's a very, very important point. Big Pharma is the least trusted industry. At least three of the many companies making COVID-19 vaccines have passed criminal and civil settlements costing them billions of dollars. One pleaded guilty to fraud. Other companies have no pre-COVID track record. Now the COVID pandemic has minted many new pharma billionaires and vaccine manufacturers have reported tens of billions in revenue. So, as we know with all these other things, remember Iraq, the Iraq war? It's like we didn't learn a thing. Remember the oil money? And everyone, like, pretty, it didn't take long for us to get onto that, and the media were all over that, and follow the money, follow the money, who's gaining from this? But this time around, so all of that been, has been forgotten. No, 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 you can trust these big corporations. You know the thing, man. <laughs> you don't have to ask them any questions. They're here for your benefit. They're not here to make money. They are here to save us all. How dare you question our saviors? Have you met my Lord and Savior, <laughs> Pfizer? Right, honestly, it's just, yeah, it's just like we've forgotten how corporations act. Uh, it's, what, uh, it's amazing. It's what fear can do to people, right? It certainly scars the cultural memory. Uh, the BMJ supports vaccination policies based on sound evidence, as we all should, by the way. As the global vaccine rollout continues, it cannot be justifiable or in the best interests of patients and the public that we are left to just trust in the system with the distant hope that the underlying data may become available for independent scrutiny at some point in the future. The same, yeah, And by the way, that, at that point it'll be too late, right? You know, if, if, the, if the, the need for this particular product is, is well and truly passed and so people are not using it, the data is irrelevant at that point. You need to know at the point at which people are putting this thing into their system, you need to know all the data, right? That's what you need to know. And at the, at the point where there's a threat and there's a pandemic and you're trying to create policies, that's when you need to know. It's not after the threat has passed. The same applies to treatments for COVID-19. Transparency is the key to building trust and an important route to answering people's legitimate questions about the efficacy and safety of vaccines and treatments and the clinical and public health policies established for their use. Bingo. And honestly, that's why when people say, oh, what's wrong with these anti-vax people? I say, dude, <laughs> these people are looking at the situation, well, certainly me, I'm looking at the situation, I'm saying I'm not comfortable with the lack of, of the incomplete nature of what we are receiving here. And clearly there have been problems and errant decision-making and behaviors on the part of officials. And so I'm, I'm just trying to navigate this as best as I, as I possibly can. I'm not trying to be obtuse. I'm not trying to be, and I certainly don't want to be a conspiracy theorist. So to have someone turn and go, well, why wouldn't you just like totally trust this big corporation, man? And then those same people who say those kinds of things will then turn around and, and happily, when it suits their political beliefs, critique and tell us that we should challenge and not believe other big corporations. 
Five Bucks says that if it was about global warming, they would say, well, you can't trust a big oil company to, to produce uh, research about global warming, <laughs> right? You know the thing. You know what I'm talking about. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Anyway, back to the article. Almost finished. 12 years ago, we called for the immediate release of raw data from cl- clinical trials. We reiterate that call now. Data must be available when trial results are announced, published, or used to justify regulatory decisions. Amen to that. There is no place for wholesale exemptions from good practice during a pandemic. In fact, I would argue that it's even more so because it's an emergency state of crisis and fear. And in that situation, you need to be very clear and level-headed and you need to justify what's going on. That's that's, That's the very moment when you need it more than ever. The public has paid for COVID-19 vaccines through vast public funding of research and it is the public that takes on the balance of benefits and harms that accompany vaccination. The public therefore has a right and entitlement to those data as well as to the interrogation of those data by experts. Bingo. And by all experts, not just by government selected ones. Then that's how you do good science, by the way. Pharmaceutical companies are reaping vast profits without adequate independent scrutiny of their scientific claims. The purpose of regulators is not to dance to the tune of rich global corporations and enrich them further. It is to protect the health of their populations. We need complete data transparency for all studies. We need it in the public interest, and we need it now. End of article. That is a great article. I mean, I've been really impressed with the British Medical Journal so far in the last few months. They've, they've really, really pushed hard and done what needs to be done and has not been happening from other sectors. They haven't just gone along with things. They've tried to actually say that there needs to be a voice of accountability in the midst of all of this. And this is so spot on. And one of the great ironies, certainly here in New Zealand, and it's not uh, un- or dissimilar to other countries as well, is that you've got these... Um, left-wing politicians who claim to be the pro-people politicians, right? We're for the working man. We're for the little guy. We're not the big business party. That's the right-wing guys. And yet here they are, happily, just blindly embracing and following along and dancing to the tune, as they say in this op-ed, of major corporations and doing almost nothing to actually ensure the protection of their own people. And part of that's fear, part of that's panic, part of that is the fact that so many of our politicians are completely out of their depth, but which is okay to be, but they don't want to admit that they are. They want to act like they're in control and all over this. Just because you're a good communicator, it doesn't mean that you are good at this and that you're all over this. But they don't want to admit that fact, because to admit that would be political kryptonite because you might not get re-elected. And so... You've got this just truly bizarre situation. <laughs> truly, truly bizarre. It shows the corrupting nature of power and fear and things like that. How easily and quickly it can corrupt. But it's absolutely true. We need that transparency. This should never have been allowed to happen. And it certainly shouldn't be allowed to go on. And, and that's one of the things that's got to be learned from this. And yeah, I said, so when people say to me, oh, bro, it's, you know, it's not all a conspiracy, man. You just trust them. They're, the corporations, they, they really want to do the best for the world. Do you think they're like evil Bond villains? <laughs> and on the inside, I'm like, well, I wouldn't say evil Bond villains, but, you know, they do love that cash money. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the, that's the, you're, these are, these are, 
as I said to someone recently, we are talking about insane fantasy levels of money and income and revenue that can be made here. This is like a black swan event for money making. This is a golden goose that you, most companies would go decades, their entire lives, without ever seeing an event that yields the power to sort of earn this much revenue for them. It's like the whole world is a captive market. And that's why this is so serious and why that scrutiny is so essential. Because in a, in a situation like that, what happens? People are more than willing to cut corners. And these companies in this industry have proven time and time and time and time and time again, consistently, that hasn't stopped, that they are more than willing to cut corners to make money. And, and, and yet we, we act like, no, no, these people are practically saints. They're monks. They make this medicine in their spare time and don't get paid for it and they bring it to the world. How dare you, Brendan? How dare you question the monks of the Pfizer Corporation? Oh, man. You know, they're here to save us. It's kind of, I'm very surprised by some people, very intelligent people I know, who are more than happy to question uh, other corporate behaviours and big government policies. But on this, gosh. But the British Medical Journal was absolutely right. And we need that transparency. And we need it now. Right, let's finish up with some good news. Some good news. Those who know me and have been following me for a while will know I've been talking about the Novavax vaccine option and why that is um, a good thing. Um, and so so Novavax is a, um, a, a, a different type of vaccine technology that doesn't involve mRNA. So those of us who are uncomfortable with that, and it's also it's a, comf- a company that is new to the market. They're not a big player. Um, and interestingly enough, that actually clearly appears to have been a disadvantage for them. It's, it's for the last six to 12 months, you, you've noticed that as the regulatory process has rolled out, the way they've been treated in some cases has been very different. They've had all these extra hurdles applied that the big boys haven't had. So it does seem there's a bit of a monopoly that's gone on here. Uh, but anyway, this article was published on the 25th of January. So just last week. And the headline is, MedSafe decision on Novavax vaccine due in two weeks. So this is an option for those who didn't want an mRNA vaccine. Um, my, I would love to get Covaxin, but um, well, we'll talk more about that in a minute, actually. But but Novavax is sort of the you know secondary, and it looks like it might be the one that's most readily available to someone like me. Uh, let me read you from the article. People hesitant to be inoculated against COVID nineteen with the Pfizer vaccine may soon be able to opt for Novavax as the nation prepares for a surge in Omicron cases. MedSafe will, in about two weeks, have made its formal independent assessment of the Novavax COVID-19 vaccine application for use as a primary COVID-19 vaccine, not a booster dose. Director General of Health Dr Ashley Bloomfield said in the Beehive on Tuesday. If it's approved, we will get advice on the decision to use and what role it would play in the programme. They haven't applied for it as a booster, so it would be as a primary course, he said. Now, this is promising. It sounds to me like Ashley Bloomfield. I don't think this is the government because I just don't think they really are on top of it or really care enough uh, to, to actually take this course of action. But I think probably Bloomfield and others possibly around him are actually genuine caring medicos have said, look, there's a group of people out here, a not insignificant number. They might be in the minority overall, but they're not an insignificant number of people who are looking for another option. And if, if we are doing a job, we should be providing that other option. There shouldn't just be one thing available. Let, let's provide that. And so it sounds like they've, they've 
you know, finally getting that message. Because initially when they were talking about Novavax, they were saying, no, it's only going to be a booster. And they're sort of indicating that you wouldn't be able to get it up front. Now that tune has completely changed. Uh, here we go. And this quote here is why, why I'm positive. I know there is interest among a group in the population in Novavax, and so we would we would be putting advice up to Cabinet about whether or not to include it in part of the program at this point. Uh, Novavax vaccine, which was expected to be used as a boost to dose New Zealand, has not been as widely taken up around the world after it had a run of production problems. It is now to, now due to go into the arms of Australian adults next month as a primary vaccine, following regulator approval on Thursday. So last Thursday, Australia approved it. It is not approved to be used as a booster dose or in people under 18, as studies are still ongoing. Vaccine expert Helen Pertussis Harris, apologies if I've uh, got the name wrong there, who has advised the WHO, the World Health Organization, on vaccinations, said the problem arose when Novavax, oh sorry, the problems arose when Novavax scaled up vaccine production at pace. It has now had to prove the problems have been solved. So, in other words, what happened here was that they were a small company and weren't like the big boys. And so they had a few hurdles. Uh, and this is what she says. Um, Using a mixture of vaccines had advantages both in spreading the risk of supply issues and increasing a person's immune response, she said. But also, as those companies are now working on new formulations to better protect against Omicron, that could be an advantage as well. <laughs> in other words, it, it might be even better on that front too. Um, it's interesting, some of the data I've seen, there seems to be an indication, there's not lots of study as, as I understand it on this, but there does seem to be some indication that it could actually be better too than um, Pfizer when it comes to stopping transmission, certainly of, of Delta and the original Alpha variant. So it would do what, um, what Pfizer promised but couldn't actually deliver on, if that's the case, if that's the case. It, it might not be, but... But there's some interesting, promising results there. Now, as I said, this is good news. For those who are like me, who are looking for a non-mRNA option, who are looking for other options. Now, ethically, what's the status of it? For those who are interested in the ethical issues, well, ethically, it's uh, exactly the same as the Pfizer vaccine. So um, a person could use it under um, the principle of uh, remote material cooperation, uh, because part of it, just exactly like Pfizer, there was a in the testing process. So not in the actual making of the vaccine itself, but in the testing of the vaccine, the HEC, um, uh, the human embryonic kidney cell line, was used in the testing process. But as those who know the ethics know, that the person who is using the vaccine, even though the vaccine itself is morally problematic because of that fact, the person using it is not the one who is morally culpable and has no moral guilt for that in the particular current climate. You know, they have no other options. It's a life-saving treatment, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and their, their remoteness to the actual act of the abortion and the use of that human cell line for that testing purpose. Um, however, for me, my preference would have been for something like Covaxin because, uh, as I understand it, Covaxin is absolutely ethical. Um, no, no, uh, no involvement with human cell lines at all at any part of the process. If I'm understanding this correctly, now it's been approved 
for, for on the vaccine passport system in New Zealand, but there's no plans, as I understand it, no plans to bring it here as a vaccine. I believe the reason it was approved in our vaccine passport and vaccine pass system was because a lot of Indian nationals have received Covaxin. And so they said, well, we've got a lot of people who have received this. You can't make them go and re-inject. So, you know, let's include this on the schedule. But as I understand it, there's no plans to bring it here and no regulation or approval process. So, yeah, unfortunately, um, that's the situation with that one. So, but the good news is there is an alternative for those of us who are looking for alternatives. And it's looking really positive, like... It may only be a month or two before it's available here, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing either. In the meantime, of course, we, some of us might end up uh, catching Omicron, uh, thankfully a milder variant. As as uh, one African doctor I watched uh, giving a report from Africa said, he's spent a lot of time over the last couple of years treating COVID patients, he said, um, this is the vaccine we couldn't create, uh, talking about Omicron. So that that's positive, so... So for some people, there's um, that, that might end up being the situation for them. But anyway, good news if you've been following the Novavax saga. Right, that's all I want to say. I, I did tell you this is going to be a long episode, and I think this officially might be the longest episode ever. So the first patrons-only episode, he made up for all those weeks away with an absolute banger. Two hours long, almost two hours long. So there you go. A huge thank you to all of you, our patrons. You guys are awesome. Thanks to you. We're back. We're able to keep doing this. Got a good, exciting year ahead. I sat down the other day with a big, massive piece of paper and charted out the year ahead and all the plans and weird and wonderful and uh, you know glorious, grand dreams and ideas and schemes for this year. And I think it's, uh, I think you'll be happy and pleased with what uh, what's coming on the horizon. But. Uh, I just want to say a huge thank you to you, and I really sincerely mean that. A happy new year to you. I hope you and your families have had a, a really blessed and happy Christmas and, and new year break, and you've had some time to yourself and a chance to regather. Uh, you know, you are, and I'm absolutely serious about this. Um, myself and my family, we remember all of you daily in our prayers. We have a little family prayer each night. We gather together, family prayer, and we, we pray for all of our patrons and our supporters and uh, all those who support our charity here in New Zealand as well. So you guys are awesome. A huge thank you to you all. Uh, I will see you next week. Remember, we're back full-time next week. Uh, so there won't be another free-to-air episode this week. Just sort of winding back into things at the moment. and Trying to get a few sort of office administrative things sorted out as we reboot the new year. But we'll be back on deck next week with another Patreon-only episode and then the free-to-air episode later in the week as well. And mid-February, mid to late February, our videos for Life FM. Life FM, <laughs> stealing someone else's branding. I'm not Life FM. Uh, Left Foot Media, all I could hear it see in my head was LFM. Uh, Monday morning, <laughs> Life FM immediately releases a statement. We have no affiliation whatsoever with this man. So uh, Left Foot Media videos, they will kick off uh, mid to late February again. That'll be great. And we've got some great uh, interviews and, and guests lined up to speak to as well. I'll see you next week. In the meantime, don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. Thanks for tuning in.